Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, I've managed to recover somewhat from Tuesday night. Woke up Tuesday morning, didn't have much of a voice at all, but I just thought, well, that'll get better. And it didn't. Now, the only problem we're going to have tonight, whoever's back there watching the uh, editing, you know, marking all the little coughs, there will probably be a lot of them. (laughs) Heads up. I've got my bottle of water ready to go. And since I just opened, broke the seal, I know nobody put anything in there (laughs) that's not water. That's been known to happen. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I'll open in prayer. So let's bow our heads. Father, we are so grateful for the many blessings that you have given us and provided for us of all the blessing of salvation, a free salvation that is based completely on the work of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, that he paid the penalty in full so that all that is necessary is for us to trust in him. And we are also grateful for your word, which provides us so many illustrations and pictures of your grace and of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he's done that we might understand all the uh, many different facets of that saving work on the cross. Now, fathers, we continue our study in Leviticus, studying the offerings and sacrifices. We pray that you would give us a fuller understanding of our salvation and what Christ did for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 1. Now, last time and the previous lessons... What we've done is to focus on the uh, tabernacle. Coming out of our studies in Hebrews 9, we need to have a pretty good understanding, pretty good frame of reference to understand the Levitical sacrifices and offerings, the, temp, uh, the tabernacle, the furniture in the tabernacle, and the, the various procedures related to the rituals and, and uh, various procedures within, uh, within the tabernacle. Now, as I pointed out in the previous studies, there's only one entrance into the tabernacle depicting the fact that there is only one way to God, and God is the one who prescribes what those conditions are. God has the right to tell us what we need to do in order to come into his presence. And throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God is very clear as to what those requirements are. And God has revealed this in a piecemeal fashion down through the ages, and we call that progressive revelation. He didn't give everything at once, 
but he gave uh, illustrations in the Old Testament through sacrifices. And he just didn't give uh, Adam the entire Levitical sacrificial system at the very beginning, but starting with Adam, there were sacrifices, burnt offerings, and we see this mentioned several times in Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 8, Genesis chapter 22 are the only times you have a burnt offering mentioned in Genesis, but it sets the stage for what is then developed more fully by the time we get into into the Mosaic law. So these sacrifices are important. So as we come into the, as someone would come into the tabernacle, the first piece of furniture that they would see is the uh, brazen altar, which is, we have a model up here on the pulpit. It was approximately seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet and about four and a half feet wide. And this is where the sacrifi- sacrifices were all conducted. It was made of acacia wood, which is a very hard, uh, incorruptible wood that was then covered with bronze. The wood pictures the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect humanity. The bronze would be able to withstand the fire and the heat from the fires of the altar, which depicts the fact that Jesus Christ was able to withstand uh, the judgment that God put upon him on the cross. And we've looked at that, the meaning of the word altar and sacrifice and how those words are are cognates of one another. And now we're looking at the function of the altar. What happened when somebody came into the uh, tabernacle and they came to the the altar? And this brings us to a study of the first uh, six to seven chapters in Leviticus, which describes the sacrifices that were standard practice under the Mosaic Law. And each of these sacrifices pictures something about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at Leviticus last time, I did a brief introduction and overview. Leviticus itself can be divided into uh, basically two sections. The first 16 chapters deal with God's regulations on the cleansing necessary to come into his presence, and that's where where our focus is. The second half of the book, God reveals the standards for the ritual worship of Israel in chapters 17 to 27. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1 takes up where the last verse in Exodus closes out that book. And in the, in Exodus itself, we see all the descriptions for the construction of the, uh, of the tabernacle and all of the furniture, the dress of the high priest, how everything was supposed to be made. And beginning in about chapter 25, it get, God describes what he wants to have constructed, and then they, he describes the construction, and then you get a third description as they uh, consecrate everything. So it's a repetitive book, but it gets the point across that God is very precise about the conditions to come into his presence. And we live in a world today where people want to say, well, you can, we can come to God however we want to. And they want to shift that orientation away from God as if God doesn't have the right to tell people what the conditions are to come into his presence. So one of the things that's emphasized in, uh, in Leviticus is the holiness of God. Because this idea that people can come to God however they want to isn't something that popped up in the 20th century. This has gone on all the way back to the Garden of Eden as soon as Eve decided she could uh, come up with her own version of God's plan and start redefining reality in terms of what would happen when she ate the fruit. 
So this has been an ongoing problem. So God makes it very clear why there can be one and only one way into his presence. Because he is a holy God, he is absolute righteousness, and he is absolute justice. And because his standard of perfection is so high, there is nothing man can do that can ever measure up to that. Uh, recently, I was asked a question on uh, related to understanding human good. This is an interesting story, and I'm not sure I have all of the information, but there's a, a pastor in Ind- Indonesia who has somehow come into contact with one of the men who is uh, a taper transcriber for many things related to uh, the Dean Bible Ministries, uh, and they've been giving this Indonesian pastor a lot of uh, a lot of different materials and funneling all this material to him, and he's in, in turn is using that to reach to teach the Bible to. Uh, Muslim background believers in Indonesia and is having a tremendous outreach. But he's trying to figure out a lot of things himself. He's been on, uh, been, he's read uh, Chafer and Ryrie and listened to some other doctrinal teachers along the way. So he has, has some background, but he's asked some fairly basic questions. And one he asked the other day was on the issue of human good. Say, well, how can the sin nature produce human good? And I thought, well, that's a question that most people probably have trouble with. And the reason is we think human good is not sin in and of itself. That's why it's not called personal sin. Human good or any of those good actions, any actions that flow from morality, any actions that help people, any actions that uh, by comparison to what other people do are basically good, helpful, generous actions of many unbelievers and are capable of many uh, good, helpful, generous deeds. It's just that they don't cut any ice with God. They're not. They don't measure up to perfect righteousness. They're not valid. So, when you're not a when you're not <clears throat> a believer and there's no new nature, then all you have is a sin nature because of corruption from Adam and the inheritance of Adam's original sin. Uh, I mean, Adam's sin nature and the imputation of Adam's original sin, every human being has one corrupt nature, and that's it. You're fallen, and the only thing you can do is to produce out of that fallen nature. And so there are some things that you produce out of that fallen nature that we classify as sin, and other things that come out of it that aren't exactly sin, they're good Deeds, but they don't have any spiritual value. They don't measure up to the righteousness of God. So the term human good is designed to simply portray that aspect, the, the morality that is produced uh, apart from God or apart from any dependence on the Holy Spirit or application uh, of divine truth. And so we recognize that every human being is fallen, and even though they can produce a measure of good, It can't ever measure up to that perfect standard that God has. And so everything in the tabernacle is designed to reinforce the principle that unless there is some sort of sacrifice, a blood offering in all but one case, a blood offering, then man can't come into God's presence. But there is an answer here to the question, how can fallen, corrupt, sinful men have a relationship with God? And God has provided that solution, and he pictures that 
through all of these various sacrifices and offerings. So in some sense, they all picture something about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call this kind of study typology. Some people can really get overboard with typology where every little thing and every little twist and every little turn uh, is made to portray some some spiritual truth. I think uh, the most extreme case I ever read in that was uh, some years ago, somebody gave me a commentary on Genesis called Gleanings in Genesis by A.W. Pink. Some of you are familiar with him. He's a hyper-Calvinist. And I read through all of his commentary on Genesis. This was many, many years ago. Probably this was before I went to seminary. And I was amazed at how he took every thing that was mentioned in the Scripture and made it refer to Christ. Now, that's hyper-typology. And there's a trend today among a lot of Bible scholars that they don't want to make anything a type. But that's just an overreaction to hyper-typology. But what we have clearly in the Old Testament is these pictures and symbols that God uses and that God used to prepare the Jews to teach them different aspects of doctrine through nonverbal ways in order to picture them as training aids so that by the time Jesus Christ would come, they would understand the purpose of his coming. They would understand the nature of what happened on the cross and because they had all of this background. And then we in the church age, going back and looking in, into the Old Testament and studying these sacrifices, can pick up on elements and aspects of those sacrifices that point to Christ uh, that we wouldn't have necessarily picked up or that somebody in the Old Testament might not have necessarily picked up. Just because uh, they it was there doesn't mean they understood every aspect and every feature that was there. Nevertheless, it's designed that way to teach something. And as we look at it through the lens of the New Testament, we can say, ah, have those aha moments and say, well, that's why God had it constructed that way is because of how that would depict something in relationship to the work of Christ on the cross. So we see a lot of this in the, these first uh, seven chapters in Leviticus where the sacrifices and offerings are, are described. And then there's an immediate shift into the uh, sanctification or consecration of the priesthood. As you And there's a natural order as you go through this. In Exodus, we have the description of how to build the tabernacle, how to build the furniture, what the kind of dress the priest should have, and then we get a description of the different kinds of sacrifices and offerings because before the priests can begin to function, they have to be consecrated. There have to be uh, burnt offerings and other offerings in order to consecrate them, set them apart, so that they can begin their service. So first there's the instruction on the, the tabernacle itself, and then there's instruction on how to uh, what sacrifices were necessary for certain purposes and the consecration there, and then we get into the setting apart and the function of the priesthood. So last time I began with a, just a very brief overview of the burnt offering, and the one thing to, that you should remember in relation to all of these offerings is one word, and that is substitution. It is so clear in all of these sacrifices that God is teaching the principle that man on his own is incapable 
of having access to God, there must be a substitute who opens the door, who does what is necessary in order to cleanse man of the problem of sin so that man can then have a relationship with God. So I'm not going to go through each of these sections verse by verse because there's a certain amount of uh, repetition and redundancy here. If you read through these chapters, uh, especially the first chapter related to burnt offering, there's a description of what you should do if you bring a a male uh, bullock from the herd. There's a description if you bring a young ram from the from the flock, and then there's a description of what you should do if, if you bring a bird for a burnt offering. And what is said about each of these is pretty much the same. And the difference is would be depend upon the financial capability of each individual because a bullock would be quite valuable, and so only those who were blessed a little more, a little more, uh, had a little more fluency, would be able to bring a bull. Then next would be those who would bring a, a ram, young ram from the from the flock, and then for the poor bringing a pigeon or a dove. But the bringing of the pigeon or the dove was viewed as, as, uh, as an unusual situation because under the concept of the law, Israel is treated as if they're obedient, and if they're obedient, there won't be much poverty in Israel, so you won't have very many people bringing uh, pigeons and doves as a, as a sacrifice. But we know that under divine discipline, then they would be in such a situation. So just to give you some summary information that I talked about last time, first of all, the location of the brazen altar speaks of the need of sacrificial atonement prior to entering into God's presence, prior to worship, prior to serving God. God multitasks. There are those I have read who have tried to make a strict case that the brazen altar and the burnt offering specifically speaks of phase one salvation. It speaks of sanctification in all of its aspects, positional as well as experiential, because after you would uh, bring your first burnt offering, after you were saved, bringing a burnt offering after that is a repetitive thing. You You don't get saved again and again and again. So it is a picture of the fact that Jesus Christ provides uh, complete sanctification for us in both, so it relates to both, both aspects. And so before you can serve God, before you can worship God, before you can have any kind of fellowship with God, there must be a sacrifice. Now let me add another point here. There's a difference between the experiential realities in the life of the average Jewish believer who lives maybe a two-day walk away from Jerusalem and the observance of certain rituals in the tabernacle. If you live up in the north in what's later Galilee, live up around Nazareth or up around the Sea of Galilee, and you uh, commit a sin... Well, does that mean that you go, oh, well, I just committed sin. I better hoof it down to Jerusalem. It's going to take about two days so that I can make a sacrifice and then turn around and get back up so I can go back to work and I get halfway back and I commit another sin. Well, I've got to turn around and run all the way back to Jerusalem. You know, nobody would ever get anywhere. They would be 
Now, we talk about yo-yo confession with Christians going in and out of fellowship. You'd be running in and out of Jerusalem all the time and never get anything done. It has to, so, so the, these offerings have to do with ritual, with ritual cleansing, as well as the expression of, forgi- uh, of uh, the reality of forgiveness once that has taken place. So you have the ritual cleansing aspect, and you have the real aspect, which is when you have uh, an individual believer up in Galilee, and he sins, he can confess his sin, just as David does in Psalm 51, and he is forgiven, and his fellowship with God is restored. And then the next time he goes down to Jerusalem, he needs to take a a trespass offering or a guilt offering, sin offering, into uh, the tabernacle in order to have that, that ceremonial cleansing and recognition of forgiveness and the reality of forgiveness at that particular point. So it reinforces this, and everything we see in the ceremonial law is designed to emphasize two things. Number one, that just about anything you or I do can render us ceremonially unclean and incapable of coming into God's presence. And that, of course, teaches the sinfulness of sin and how sin permeates everything in our life. And the second thing it teaches is that man cannot come to God on his own. There must be a a blood sacrifice. The second point I mentioned last time is that the basic offering is the burnt offering. This is called the Olah offering. Olah from the verb Allah meaning to go up or to ascend. It's also called the Holocaust offering because the Greek word that is used to uh, transliterate this into uh, the Septuagint is holocatoma, which is the Greek word from which we get our English word holocaust. And it has to do with the fact that everything was consumed in the offering. And then the other word that's important to see in the process is this word, uh, karab, uh, it's, uh, the, uh, it's translated here as coming near. And you find that down in verse, in verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering, um, no, it's not in verse it's, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering in verse 2. Uh, bringing it before the Lord, the idea of coming, coming near to the Lord, approaching him emphasizes uh, the idea of pr- presenting it emphasizes the aspect of fellowship. The noun cognate for this is the word korban, which is spelled Q-O-R-B-A-N. And this is the word that's used in verse 2 when we read, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, and it uses the word korban there. When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, the of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. And then it goes on to describe uh, the first burnt offering. So the emphasis here with the word korban as an offering and then the use of the verb uh, uh, <clears throat> karab emphasizes fellowship. And fellowship, as we've studied, has two aspects. It's positional fellowship, which every believer has at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. It is a legal concept. We are adopted into God's family. It is a permanent, eternal fellowship that can never be broken. However, in terms of our day-to-day experience, it can be broken and can be violated when we sin. This is why David says in the Psalms, if I 
regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That day-to-day sin can separate us from God as we shift from walking by means of the Spirit to walking by means of the flesh. or Instead of walking in the light, we're walking in darkness. And the only way that we can recover is through confession of sin. So you have two kinds of fellowship portrayed here, positional and experiential, both of which are portrayed typologically in the in the offering. The, the type, the picture, the word type means a shadow or a picture. It's an ex- our example, and the type gives us a picture of what is going on. The burnt offering is designed to picture Christ's uh, full atonement on the cross, which is final and complete in terms of its payment for sin. And it also supplies the ongoing need for experiential cleansing of sin after salvation. This is why 1 John 1, 7 precedes 1 John 1, 9. Now you're saying, well, what does 1 John 1, 7 say? 1 John 1, 7 says the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. And it's a present tense there and has that, that continuous idea that the blood of Christ continually cleanses from all sin. Now, there have been folks who come along and they've read that and they said, see, we really don't need to confess our sins because right here we have a clear statement that the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from sin. So why do we need to confess? And I kind of sat back and scratched my head a little bit and say, well, let me see here. If 1 John 1, 7 means you don't have to ever confess your sin, then why just two sentences later does John say, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? It's because 1 John 1, 7 tells us the positional reality and the basis for the action that occurs in 1 John 1, 9. So that the reality is, is that the blood of Christ is the basis for our eternal positional cleansing, but the way that is activated in our day-to-day life is that whenever we sin, we know that if we confess it, admit it, acknowledge it to God, then instantly we are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness on the basis of that uh, death of Christ on the cross. And the second thing that I ought to bring up in talking about 1 John 1, 7 is understanding that phrase, the blood of Christ. What does that mean? Does that mean the physical blood? Does that mean the, the literal uh physical components that make up the blood, the uh, red blood cells and white blood cells and the plasma and everything else that's involved there, or is this a figure of speech? And one of the um, things I mentioned before on Mondays, usually the last Monday of every month, this month it was this last Monday, I meet with a group of pastors and <clears throat> teach a extended form of Bible study methods. And we've been reading through a book by um, one of the professors I had at Dallas Seminary, Roy Zook, called Basic Bible Interpretation, which is a very good book just introducing the basic principles of how to as a Bible study methods specifically related to hermeneutics. And the chapter we were studying on, on, um, on Monday had to do with figures of speech. And there is a book that, is, that he references that I just about tore apart when I was in seminary. We used it so much called Figures of Speech in the Bible by E.W. Bullinger. And the first 25 pages of the book are the table of contents listing over 200 figures of speech listed in the Bible. I mean, that's just the table of contents. That's not the description of all of them. And that's the remainder of the book. So there's all kinds of 
figures of speech in the Bible, and Bullinger's work is considered the definitive work on figures of speech used in the Bible. And Bullinger uh, states that the term, when blood is used in these kinds of contexts, is what's called a metonymy. Now, you never heard of that. You never heard of most of those, trust me. I was an English major in college. I never heard of 90% of these figures of speech. They pretty much limited our education to similes and metaphors. And every now and then they might throw in something like uh, hyperbole, one or two others personification. But that was it. Well, if you, uh, uh, a metonymy is when you put one word for something else that it is related to. And sometimes you have a metonymy of the cause for the effect or the thing for the object, different ones like that. And that's what you have here, is that when somebody dies a violent death, in many cases, there is the shedding of blood. And so you go back to principles in the Mosaic Law and Leviticus, where you have statements that the life is in the blood, and, then, and that is a picture of uh, the fact that when blood is no longer circulating, there's death. When somebody bleeds out, that means they their their life is gone. They are now they're they're now dead. They have uh, exsanguinated. There is no longer any any blood there, so they're dead. But not all violent deaths are caused by bleeding. You can stab someone, or you can shoot them. You can find any number of ways to cause them to bleed, but there's many ways in which you can murder somebody through poison or strangling or other ways in which there is little or no bloodshed, but you've still committed murder. So you can go back into the Old Testament as far back as Genesis 9 when God authorizes capital punishment and he states it this way, whenever man sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And the principle there is the shedding of blood in that context. It uses a figure of speech which indicates a violent kind of death and a wrong kind of death, a commitment of a uh, committing of a homicide. And so, when we have this phrase, "the blood of Christ," blood stands for death. And so, when the animal's blood is shed on the altar, that is a figurative way using a metonymy of talking about the death of the animal, the the physical death of the animal. But the physical death of a sacrificial animal in the Old Testament isn't just depicting the physical death of Christ on the cross. It is picturing the spiritual death of Christ on the cross when God pours out his judgment upon Jesus Christ. And you can look this up in any number of uh, Greek lexicons under the word blood, and it will point out that the word is used figuratively of the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross when he pays the penalty for the sins of the world. And so that's what is happening here. All of this is designed to picture these different aspects of Christ's work. So when we get into 1 John 1, 7, and we learn that the blood of Christ or the death of Christ, that's his spiritual death, continually cleanses from all sin, if you were Jewish you would have a certain picture in your mind related to all of these sacrifices that you had seen. And then you would have another understanding. If we confess our sin, that would picture the sin offering. That's uh, the fourth offering that we'll study. 
And when you put your hand upon the animal, then there's a transference of sin and guilt from you to that particular animal. And that is what happens at, at the cross. And then you would uh, confess your sin in relation to forgiveness. And we'll get into that as we proceed in our study. So the burnt offering pictures both the positional cleansing that occurs once for all when we trust Christ as our Savior and the ongoing experiential cleansing that takes place as we confess our sins. So the ultimate way to define this is that the burnt offering pictures the sanctifying work of Christ on the cross, which sets us apart so that we can now have fellowship and have communion with God. So as the, as the person would bring the offering, he would come up and he would lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be acceptable for him to make atonement on his behalf. Now, the third point I have is that as they brought the burnt offering, he would come in. And the entire, and you present the offering after they've gone through everything. We'll go into some of the details in a minute. The entire offering is consumed by fire. And what that indicates is that there is nothing left for the worshiper to do. Everything belongs to God. God, God is the one who completely consumes the offering and there's nothing left over for the worshiper to do. Everything is, everything is done, indicating that Jesus Christ in the judgment that the heat, the fire, depicts the judgment, in the judgment on Christ, everything was paid for. Fourth thing we should note about the burnt offering is that this is the regular offering that is made every morning and every evening in the temple. There's a burnt offering at dawn, burnt offering at dusk, continuously depicting the need for cleansing. Fifth point. The main doctrine here, the main teaching that we want to get across is that no one can ever draw near to God. No one can have a relationship with God apart from a substitutionary payment. There must be a substitutionary payment, a certain kind of death as depicted in the violent death of the animal. This was a horrific, shocking thing to come into the temple and to bring your lamb or, your, or, the, or the young bull and to kill it, to watch, collect all of the blood, you, you, you slit his neck, slit his throat, all, collect all the blood in the basin, you hear all the sounds of the animal dying and collect all that, and then you would skin the animal and then divide up the parts, quarter it, lay, lay it out, in the correct order on the uh, burnt offering, and then it would all be consumed. Every, and uh, we'll get into some of the details in a minute. So it's a, it's a very uh, graphic picture that someone would have to go through again and again and again, depicting that uh, eventual work of Christ on the cross. Sixth point is that the burnt offering found its ultimate typological fulfillment in the cross. The whole, it pictures everything that is accomplished on the cross. So that picks up all the elements related to positional as well as experiential. Now the purpose is defined, as we see here in Leviticus 1.4, as to make atonement on behalf of the worshiper. 
And we covered this last time, but we need to hear this several more times before it sinks in, that the English word atonement is, is, was generated in the early Middle Ages, and it was a combination of the word at one moment to indicate a, the, sort of the concept of reconciliation. What's interesting, and I don't know what this means, what's interesting is there's no comparable word for atonement in the New Testament. If you look up the word atonement in an English concordance, you won't find the word used in the New Testament. And I'm not sure what that means, but I think there's something significant there, and one of these days I hope to figure it out. Uh, there's a lot of discussion. Most systematic theologies you read, it always talks about the work of Christ, summarizing it in this term of atonement. And yet you never find that word anywhere in the New Testament. So it may be a word that is related to only the provisional aspect of the sacrificial system, but I can't be dogmatic on that. I haven't worked my way through everything yet. You have two words that show up in the Hebrew text that are homonyms. They are spelled the same, K-P-R, Kafar. That's how you would pronounce it. One word shows up in Genesis uh, 6 when Noah covers the ark with pitch. Another word shows up when you're talking about atonement. And for many years, those were not distinguished. And so you and I both heard people teach on atonement that it means to cover our sin, and that would seem to fit. You have a picture with the uh, Ark of the Covenant where you put blood on the mercy seat, and it would cover sin. But now most uh, Hebrew scholars and dictionaries distinguish between these two words, and that this word that is used in Leviticus and in atonement passages has the idea to propitiate, to expiate, to satisfy. And that this is a word that, in, that, that covers the, the, the cleansing aspect of the sacrifices. And that is further substantiated by the fact that when you get into a study in the, in the Septuagint, which is the translation that the Jewish rabbis made of the Hebrew Old Testament, that in many, many cases, not all, but in many cases, the, this uh, word is translated by those Jewish rabbis with the word, um, word katharizo, which is the word meaning to cleanse. And so that is the primary picture of atonement is the cleansing of sin. Now, when the uh, worshiper would come in, he comes in and he brings in a one of three types of sacrifices for a burnt offering. And the sacrifice is, is to be a male that is without spot or blemish. This depicts the Lord Jesus Christ who was sinless, who was impeccable in his human nature, in the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had no sin. He's born of a virgin. There is no inherited sin from Adam. There is no imputation of Adam's original sin, and he did not commit any any personal sin. So the male animal is brought in. Usually it has been kept for a few days and observed to make sure that it is not ill, that there are no defects, no problems, and it is authorized by the priest. The sacrifice was brought in, and it was to be slaughtered, and its blood is then collected in a basin, and then it is splattered on the altar. 
Now, one of the word when when the when they do this, the worshiper is to put his hand, as I mentioned earlier, on the animal, and it's not just placing it there, you know, just lightly, but it has the idea in the Hebrew of putting some pressure. In fact, the uh, rabbis translated it; they would push hard. So there's there's that that indication of identification, and this is where we pick up. Ideas related to baptism in the New Testament, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The idea that you see in an ordination when uh, pastors and the church leaders will lay their hands or put their hands on someone who's being ordained. It is the idea that there is an identification uh, going on that an ordination that the person is being ordained is identified with the doctrine and the beliefs of those who who's ordaining them. And so in the sacrifice, the worshiper would put his hand and hold on and push down on the animal, and that is a sign that his sins are being identified with the animal and the guilt is being transferred uh, to the animal. Then they would slit the animal's throat, take one of the bronze basins, collect all of the blood, and then they would take it and they wouldn't just sort of sprinkle it, they would splatter it. So there's, again, a sense of, of violence, a sense of, of uh, intentionality there. The Hebrew word has the idea of throwing it uh, against the altar, which indicates that that, it is the pl- that is the place of judgment. In the case of the bird, they would, they would just, the, the priest would twist, the, twist his neck, break his neck, and then simply put him on the altar, and the blood of the bird would run down the side of the uh, side of the altar. According to the description here in Leviticus one, it was the worshiper who would slit the throat of the animal, but later on it was the priest who would do it. Uh, then they would take the animal, they would skin it, and they would skin it out, and the the hide, the leather, would go to the priest. Leviticus chapter seven verse eight. Uh, indicates that. And I think that is a depiction of the fact that the the hide, which is without spot or blemish, once you skin it, you can tell that there's no defect in the hide, that the clothing of the priest with that skin is a picture of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So the animal is skinned. The skin goes to the priest for their clothing. The animal was then cut into pieces, if it was a bird, then the feathers are removed. That's why it's not going to smell bad because you're not burning all the fur and all the feathers and everything else. You're, you're butchering the animal. You're removing the hide. And then you would take the entrails and clean the entrails. So the priest goes over to the, to the laver, which is the place of cleansing, and he is going to remove all of the uh, dung, all of the material from inside of the inside of the intestines. And so these are completely washed and cleansed before they're burned on the altar. So you're not going to get all the foul smell from uh, the intestines and everything else in there burning on the altar. Everything goes on the altar has to be clean, just like the Lord Jesus Christ was without sin. And so uh, all of the dung is removed uh, from the from the entrails, and then they are offered up on, on the altar. Um, sacrificial fire, and the fat of the animal 
is also to be specifically stated to be removed and put burned on the altar. And why is that? Why do we have the mention of fat? Because you're not bringing just some skinny little sick animal to the altar, but this is the healthiest, strongest, most valuable animal in the herd or in the flock. And the fact that there's fat present indicates that he's well-fed and is, is then presented. So it is, a, it is a sacrifice in the sense that the worshiper is bringing something that is valued. So all of this pictures the work of Christ on the cross. So in summary, what we have is, number one, the fe- that the whole sacrifice pictures uh, fellowship with God. So it is a foundational sacrifice, even though it's not always the first sacrifice. It is a foundational sacrifice because it depicts substitutionary atonement. The second thing that we see is that these burnt offerings are the most common, so this is going to be reinforced in the minds of the people twice a day, every day, on and on and on, and it's the most common sacrifice mentioned in the Scripture. Uh, The burnt offerings are only to be offered in a place where God authorized. According to Deuteronomy 12.13, be careful that you do not offer up your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. Solomon is going to violate that and allow burnt offerings in the high places uh, from the beginning of his reign, uh, even though um, he is not worshiping idols. But there's a violation of this, this law from the very beginning of his, of his reign. Deuteronomy 12.14, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, only in a, uh, in a stated location. And this is called the law of the central sanctuary. Uh, third, uh, fourth thing that we notice is that anyone can bring an offering. They're not going to be restricted by their uh, economic status, by how much they have, how much they don't have. Anyone can bring an offering, and if you don't have anything, you can at least afford to bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. Fifth point is that the complete burning of the sacrifices represents the totality of the judgment and purification. And this pictures the fact that in Jesus Christ's death on the cross, every sin is paid for. The the picture of the burning also pictures the fact that it is the substitute that bears all of the penalty, all of the judgment, not the worshiper. Sixth point. Though the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, as we learn in Hebrews, God did actually forgive their sins. I often use a word, it's provisional. And by provisional, I don't mean it's any less real. It's just that because the ultimate sacrifice hasn't been accomplished yet, it's based on something that is going to happen in the future. So it's provisional. But God's I don't mean that in the sense that God is just... Uh, holding out and waiting, and if for some reason Christ didn't die because there was a certainty that Christ would die. So it is a it is a real forgiveness, and we see this in passages such as Psalm 100, uh, 130, verses 3 and 4, but if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It was a real and total and complete forgiveness. Psalm seventy-eight thirty-eight. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all of his wrath. So this is the idea that there is a full, incomplete, and total uh, judgment. Then the seventh point 
is that just in terms of studying the Old Testament, burnt offerings were in practice from the very beginning. The first mention of a burnt offering is Genesis 8.20 at the time of the flood, and then there's a se- only a second burnt offering in Genesis. That is when God asked Abraham to come and offer Isaac as a burnt offering in Genesis 22. In the book of Judges, it's mentioned several times, Gideon offers a burnt offering to when the angel of the Lord appears to him. Jephthah wrongly vows a, to offer whatever comes out of the door of the house to greet him when he comes home uh, as a burnt offering and ends up having to sacrifice his daughter. And then Manoah, the father of, of uh, Samson, offers a burnt offering in gratitude to the angel of the Lord. So there seem to be a couple of different motivations in bringing a burnt offering. One is in relationship to understanding the the provision of grace to cover sin. The other is in gratitude to God for his provision. Uh, burnt offerings are mentioned, or the word is mentioned over 280 times in the Old Testament, so this is your most common offering. The next offering that gets that we'll get into, which is in uh, Leviticus chapter 2, is the grain offering, or sometimes called the meal offering. Or you could even call it the tribute offering. It is the bloodless offering. Of these offerings that we have in Leviticus, it's the only one that is bloodless. And it was a raw grain offering that was mixed with oil. And it could be either raw, just the the flour itself and, and oil, or it could be baked in an oven or baked in a pan or fried in a skillet. There were there was to be no leaven or honey involved or used in the uh, meal offering because this would picture corruption of some kind, and it was to be from the first fruits of the harvest. It was also to be seasoned with salt, and salt is a preservative. So this is a picture of God's preservation of the covenant uh, with Israel. Now, as we get into a look at the at the grain offering in chapter 2, we read in verse 1, When anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So the word that we have here for fine flour is the word solat in the Hebrew, and it referred to the finest of flour. You take the grain, and the grain you have the whole grain, and then you can take just the inner core of the grain. And this is referring to flour made from the inner part of the grain that was uh, very valuable. In fact, in some passages, it's indicated to be uh, as valuable as silver and gold. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses thir- verse 13, uh, indicates that. In 2 Kings 7, 1, it is only served in the palace of the king. So it indicated something that was extremely valuable and not something that was in everybody's uh, pantry. It was a very fine flower. This flower, because of its uniqueness and the fact that it is uh, <clears throat> refined so, the very best of the flower, represents the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the offering of the uh, first part of the, the, the first kind of offering, the raw flower offering, when the worshiper would pour oil on it, this depicts the anointing of the Messiah, that he is the one that is anointed or appointed by God to carry out his particular task. 
when the frankincense is added to it in the in the offering, when a portion of it was then taken to be burned uh, on the altar, then this would produce a sweet savor offering, a sweet smell, and this indicates the fact that the Father is propitiated or satisfied. He finds the sacrifice of Christ on the cross to be pleasing to him. And then the fact that this is a fine flower that is crushed and ground very finely is a picture of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ was judged on our behalf. The different types of, uh, there are four different types of meal offerings. You have an uncooked uh, version. Then you have three that are cooked. And the three that are cooked, they were they would uh, take the uh, flour and make small cakes of them, and some would be baked in an oven, like a Dutch oven. And in the, with those baked in the oven, you couldn't see what was going on inside the oven. And this is a picture of the unseen suffering of Christ on the cross. As the Father covered the uh, land with darkness so the people could not look upon the Lord during that time when the sins were poured out upon him, so this pictures the unseen suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. The two other forms of, of the uh, meal offering, frying the cakes on the griddle, which was a flat metal pan, pictured the visible suffering at the hands of man, as did the frying pan, where the cakes would be cooked inside of a frying pan or skillet, so you had uh, pan-fried meal offerings. A third form of the meal offering that's mentioned here is uh, indicated at, towards the end. Look down to verse chapter 2, verse 14. If you offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire. And the roasting on the fire is a picture of judgment. Uh, the grain is beaten from the full heads, and you shall put oil on it. Again, that placing of oil on it always depicts something related to anointing, and lay frankincense on it, which again would indicate the sweet, the sweet savor. So the <clears throat> this. Uh, the form of the green ears is a, also a picture of what Jesus refers to in John 12:24 when he talked about the fact that unless the grain falls to the ground and dies, it can't bring forth uh, new life. And just as he is judged for our sins on the cross and dies, it is through his death, burial, and resurrection that we receive new life and regeneration. So this, again, pictures the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's also a depiction in the oil of the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oil is often used in Scripture as a picture of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And during his life on the earth, Jesus Christ was sustained by the Holy Spirit. We have passages such as Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That would be the Lord Jesus Christ coming from the stem of Jesse, Jesse being David's father coming out of that family, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit sustained the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is one of the prophecies related to that. We see that the Holy Spirit was related to the baptism of Jesus, when at his baptism the Father spoke from heaven, and the people there would hear his voice, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased, and then the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. 
right after that baptism is when the Lord Jesus Christ then was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and uh, nights of uh, fasting, and then he went through the three tests where Satan, the tempter, came and, and tested him, and he is sustained through his testing through God the Holy Spirit. And then when he goes to the cross, he is sustained on the cross while he is bearing our sins through God the Holy Spirit. So the oil represents that sustaining ministry of God the Holy Spirit in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at the grain offering, it also is a voluntary offering in emphasizing the individual volition of every worshiper. They would come and of their own free will, they would bring this offering to the Lord. A portion of it, only a portion of it, was burned on the altar. The rest is given to the priest. Therefore, this offering depicts the expansiveness and the sufficiency of God's grace and supplying uh, for the needs of the worshiper as well as uh, for the priest. So it emphasizes the sufficiency of God's grace. The main idea is that those who have been accepted by God express their gratitude and their dedication to him through the meal offering. It is from their very best, from the first fruits, and is designed to express the fact that we recognize that all that we have is from him because of what he has provided for us on the cross. Now, next time, we'll come back in chapter 3 and look at the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to focus on these doctrines, to be reminded that we are and we have what we are and have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He provided everything for us. He gave us a complete salvation, completely paid the penalty of sin so that we can have salvation simply by trusting in him. He is our substitute. He paid the price for us. Father, we pray that we might, as we reflect upon this, that we might be moved to gratitude as depicted in the meal offering, that it's a recognition of that complete atonement made by the Savior that we recognize that that we serve you and our lives are to be dedicated to you and for your service. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.